Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, I just want to know: Are you wearing a fucking mask? <laughs> Every time I step out the door, I am wearing a fucking mask. So yes, of course, I'm wearing a mask too. I mean, it's the right thing to do, both for me and for the people around me. And I'm listening to the medical experts and Mr. Springsteen, and we do everything he tells us to do, right? Well, I don't know. I think you do. I'm not sure if I'm as much of a follower. Yeah, I know. So anyway, that, of course, was a reference to Bruce in episode six of the now named From My Home to Yours. I think that's where we're going to start tonight, right? Of course. That's the latest and greatest in Bruce land. And they did title this one. It was called Down to the River to Pray. And it was very, very spiritual. But within that, it was... Very, very angry. Angry Bruce was was in the room. Yes, and angry Bruce, when he has a point to make, he makes it bluntly, as as we just alluded to, as he uh, he opened the broadcast by basically telling the president to wear a fucking mask. Yes, he did, and then that went into Bob Dylan's "Disease of Conceit." If the words itself didn't send the message, the song certainly did. Yeah. Bruce Bruce had a point. He's upset. Uh, people have died who shouldn't have died. And that always, uh, obviously, for a lot of people, that it's, it's very angering. Well, his exact words in the intro to Disease of Conceit were, these lives deserve better than just being inconvenient statistics for our president's re-election efforts. It's a national disgrace. He couldn't be any stronger than that. And Perhaps your politics differ from Bruce's. We're not trying to be a political show. We're just recounting what happened. This is a show that looks at what Bruce is doing, and this is what he's doing right now. But very, very bold and I think very compelling stuff. It was. And the way he he read off a lot of the names of the people who have passed from from COVID-19 and adding a little bit about each person, that, that was very touching. I, I mean, obviously— he conveyed more compassion and condolences for the 117,000 people who have died than this current administration has ever. Someone has to, I guess, and he's going to step up and do it. I think that's fair. And he also used the clip from President Obama in 2014, which quite presciently predicted that there would be a pandemic in five years, and he was just about right on target. (laughs) And Bruce certainly has a point for the people who disagree with him. I'm not exactly sure what your argument could be at this point. In all honesty, (laughs) this is just a matter of humanity. It's not a matter of politics. But the songs that he played, uh, I mean, really quite a selection. Changes by Tupac Shakur, which, of course, uses Bruce's buddies, Bruce Hornsby's The Way It Is as a bass and Deep River from Paul Robeson and Creedence Who'll Stop the Rain. So it it was quite a mix and as I say, very, very spiritual. And I, and I think within his anger, he was he was trying to be uplifting, but he also wanted to get across, I think, the point that he made, which was that there needs to be changes. Right. And one of the, uh, when he was introducing Johnny Cash's song, the, the Man Comes Around, Bruce said, Judgment Day's coming. The election is only months away. Vote. God help us all vote before it's too late. And that's his message for, for, for bringing about change. One of the interesting things to note was that at the start of the show, he did say that he originally had a totally different show planned. He was going to do something that was going to celebrate the joys of summer, as he put it. And instead, he turned to this political show, which was very spiritual, as we say. I hope he goes back to the joy of summer show because, you know, look, we all need joy at this (laughs) point. And while there's certainly a role for Bruce to speak out as he thinks is appropriate, and we certainly back that if he's got something to say that's going to be a little bit more frivolous and fun and and add some joy into our lives i would like to hear that as well as we've talked about before when we look at 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 bruce's shows you you often have serious bruce and you have loose bruce and this is a very serious bruce and he, he made his point but at the same time you're right we do need some some loose bruce and now he has a he has a show in the can as they say so he can take a week off or he can just kind of uh, polish it up and make some changes here and there and, and go for it. I thought his final words before the last song, which was Down to the River to Pray, he said, 
American citizens unite. Your country needs you. Your countrymen need your care and compassion. And this is our moment. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay strong, mask up and go in peace. And I really thought that was an eloquent way for him to end his segment of the show before it went into that final song. Yes, he has a way with words. And as we've mentioned several times before, and it, for a second there, I thought he was going to go into this our land. But, uh, you know, stay safe, stay strong and mask up are as good as stay hard, stay hungry and stay alive. Oh, yeah. I think this hard land would have worked perfectly in this context had he used it. Now, of course, the, the title of the episode, Down to the River to Pray, was that's an old, old bluegrass classic song. And it was actually the one that he, he that was the, the closing music after after the river shows in 2016. But it's, right, the walkout music. The walkout music, right? But that that was Alison Krauss's version, and he didn't play. Uh, he didn't. He played two versions of this song, John Paul Jones, to open the show, which was, I believe, all all instrumental, and then the York College Concert Choir with actual vocals to to close the show. Yeah, that was sweet. It was sweet, and on a kind of a lighter note, I kept hoping for for another new song like Idiot's Delight in the last episode, but. Uh, which was not to be, but he uh, he delivered in many other ways. I also wonder at this point when he's going to pick up a guitar and and actually <laughs> do something in the course of the show. But we'll see if that ever happens. Yes, and and one more note about uh, uh, serious Bruce or pissed off Bruce is that let's hope he's writing. Let's hope he's taking some of this anger and translating it into you know maybe the second part of of the next E Street album because apparently he worked on it quite a bit last year already. Well, it does bring up an interesting suggestion because from everything we had heard, they were very far along on a record. But if he is writing more and obviously the record's not coming out this year, so perhaps it'll morph into something different. That, that always happens. And then we'll have more more, more extra tracks for for uh, for tracks two or or even tracks three, you know, 30 years from now. <laughs> all right. Well, let's hope we're all still alive. then. <laughs> I have faith. Al. Come on. Show a little faith, you know. Okay, I will, I'll show a little faith there. <laughs> Why don't we move on to tonight's topic, which is going to be the Born in the USA tour. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the first year, 1984. But as our cutoff, we're going to go into January 1985 because it seems to make sense to go all the way through Syracuse, don't you think? Yes, it does. Uh, that's the end, basically the indoor, the end of the indoor tour. And then in the next episode, we'll come back and do the rest of 85, which will be Australia, Japan, and of course, then the massive stadium tours of Europe and the United <laughs> States. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yeah, that's going to be fun to talk about. That was that was really a crazy year. 84 was a little less crazy, but as it built, obviously, Bruce went to the stratosphere. I think, why don't we start in mid-February, even though we've we've already covered the Born in the USA sessions in a lot of detail in our third episode. So we're not going to repeat all that. And anyone who hasn't heard it can go back and listen. But if we start in mid-February, on February 14th, Dancing in the Dark was recorded. And I think that that's an important moment that leads into the rest of the year. Certainly, because that ended up being the lead single. And it, and that's the one that ended up being Bruce's biggest hit. And it's the one that launched launched the, the, the mega album that was Born in the USA. One of the things that was interesting about that year, Nebraska had come out in 82, and there was so much anticipation about Bruce returning with a rock album. I remember this with WNEW, that with constant updates as to what Bruce was doing and when we may finally get some music. And Dancing in the Dark just launched that record in a way that I'm not sure anyone would have really expected because it was a definitely a new sound for him. Well, I was going to ask you, what was, what was your reaction to that after listening to The River and Darkness and Born to Run for the previous X number of years? In all honesty, I was so young when I first heard, and probably in some episode we'll talk about how we first discovered Bruce, but I was 15 when Born in the USA came out, and I was a huge, huge fan of Born to Run when I first heard it, and then I got The River. But at that point in your life, you're not really just analyzing musical styles or anything. I just knew I was waiting for the new material to come. I knew Bruce was going to be touring. I had seen my first concert ever the year before, and I was dying to see Bruce and E Street Band. And then Dancing in the Dark arrived, and it was really a lightning bolt, I think, for a lot of people. Well, it certainly sounded that way. I, was, uh, I wasn't quite there yet. I was, I'm a couple of years behind you, but... Uh... Certainly reading about it and uh, having that kind of historical perspective, I'm a little jealous of you experiencing that in, in real time. 
Yeah, it was it was very cool time. And getting back to mid-February, we know from the story in Marsha's book, Glory Days, that Landau and Bruce had had this fight that led to the creation of Dancing in the Dark. And interestingly, while they were in the studio along the same time, Bruce had to deal with the fact that Steve was leaving and there was going to be a tour and he was going to replace Steve. And from what we know, right around the same time, perhaps even just later in the week, Bruce met with Nils for the first time to start talking about him maybe replacing Steve. Yeah, it sounded like Bruce had a lot going on. He was they were obviously hustling to try to finish the album. The The fight was the fact that uh, Landau didn't hear a single. And Bruce was like, I've written 80 songs. You want an, you want another one? You write it. So on top of that, they recorded the song. And then then per, per Bruce Bass, just, just days later, Bruce was hanging out with Nils. And, you know, they were exploring the possibility of Nils joining the band. Or at least Nils had offered his services. Now, we don't really know if anyone else was considered. Uh, at the time, I know there were rumors on the shore that maybe Bobby Bandiera was also in the mix. That obviously didn't happen. I think about how huge that would have been had Bobby joined the E Street Band. Well, huge for him, I should say. <laughs> but of well, course, I mean, he, well, he toured with Bon Jovi a few years later, or maybe a couple decades later. Yeah, no, it was a ways after 1984. <laughs> I think that All was right. in the 2000s. So yes, it was. Well, a couple he, decades. He he went on to join the the Asbury Jukes, of course, just shortly thereafter that. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's go back to the E Street Band search for replacement. Well, we know Nils joins the band, and (laughs) at that point in the spring, as they're getting Born in the USA ready to come out, Bruce also embarked on one of his little shore tours, and he was popping up in bars, he played with Clarence, he played with Cats. I think he made a couple of appearances later on with Nils as well, where they joined other people. And then, I mean, the first rehearsal for Bruce Bass again is, is early May, so obviously it was between, you know, late February and, and early May that that Bruce made the offer for, for Bruce to, for Nils to join him. So that, that's the first, you're saying the first rehearsal for the Born in the USA tour? Yes, yes. So rehearsal started in early May. Now, later in the month, Bruce makes quite an unusual appearance on his own. He's at a club in Asbury Park called Xanadu, and there's a band on stage. I guess they were called Bystander, according to Bruce Bass. And they've learned Dancing in the Dark, which has come out on May 9th. And they announced to the crowd that they're going to play Bruce's new single and they hope he's going to come up and play with them. And I guess from the way it's described, they start playing the song and he must have been uncertain as to whether he wanted to do it (laughs) because he didn't pop up on the stage immediately. But they kept vamping and finally he did get on stage. And so the first performance ever of Dancing in the Dark was done with some band called Bystander. At a club that no longer exists in Asbury Park. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, that kind of that kind of fits the legend, doesn't it? It does. From the tape, and then there, there is a soundboard recording of at least of that one song. They were having fun trying to get Bruce up there, and uh, he finally went on and played. The place obviously went crazy. <laughs> it wasn't number one on the charts. I mean, it, it peaked at number two, as as we said earlier. But um, it was number one. You can bet it was number one in Asbury Park and the, and the rest of the Jersey Shore. So everybody knew it, and that must have been quite the moment. WNEW played the song early and got hit with a cease and desist order. And then when it did come out officially, it was in such heavy rotation. It was incredible how much the song was being played. Now, I don't know in the other cities, but in New York, it was just, it was massive. And then of course, Pink Cadillac was on the B side and that got a lot of play as well. I mean, much more play than you'd normally get from a B side. Well, and I also, I have to think that Dancing in the Dark got not only got got play on NEW, but any of the top 40 stations, top 40 stations in New York at the time as well. No. So I, I it was, think so. I was so, not really a top 40 listener. I uh, see. I was. So that's, that's how I got into, that's how I got into dancing in the dark that summer. So, but I imagine that it was basically played on every, every station that would play that played any kind of version of rock music. On June 4th, the album came out. It was from day one. It was just a massive event. And four days later, on June 8th, Bruce and the band took over the pony for what was really the first Born in the USA rehearsal show. I heard stories about that. I think it was years later, but that people that we knew who were in the building that night, and I guess at some point they even locked the doors to keep people (laughs) out because word spread and it became so huge and the, the place was packed. 
Yeah, the stories I heard was that people were going to the pay phones and, and calling friends saying, you got to come, Bruce's guitar is here, or Clarence's sax is here. And uh, I can't imagine, you know, waiting in line for that payphone, but uh, it turned out to be a hell of a night. It gives you chills. It really does to think about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've, you know, I've seen Bruce at the Pony, you know, several times in the last 20 years or so, but I just can't imagine him with the E Street Band. No, so, that would have been so cool. And so jealous. They were preparing for the tour, and then they moved to Pennsylvania where the Clare Brothers facility was. That was the sound system, and they were actually on the stage rehearsing. And there they went and did a very unique appearance in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on June 21st. They were in a local bar, and I guess they weren't planning on playing at all. They literally took over the instruments of the band, the house band that was playing, and they played seven songs. Yeah, and there's a soundboard recording of that one too, so you can you can definitely go back and hear Max playing with the drum machine. Oh, that, that one's sounds... a, it's a tough listen with that drum machine. <laughs> well, it definitely makes a difference, and uh, or made it different. But what I what I like is the way he introduced Hungry Heart. He said, "Here's a medley of my hit," and he then he but then he quickly corrected myself. Oh, hits! I have two now, and then he played Dancing in the Dark immediately immediately after Hungry Heart. After they left the Clare Brothers facility in Pennsylvania, they then headed back to New Jersey. And at this point, Nils, I guess, came down with some kind of illness that gave him laryngitis. And that leads to something that becomes a pretty (laughs) big (laughs) event for Bruce over the rest of his life. And that is, of course, he decides he needs a backup singer and he invites young local singer Patty Scalfa to join the E Street Band. <laughs> yes, and from small things, big things one day come. And that certainly can be described of her joining the band back in just days before the tour started in St. Paul, right? I and, she she had, I think, four or five days to prepare. Oh man, I can't imagine having to learn Bruce's entire catalog, but at the same time, I have to think that she was as being a, a local Jersey shore girl and being a member of the Jukes that she probably was familiar with most of that stuff. So it probably didn't take her very long to to really get on board. Well, and her role was very specific on that tour, unlike when we talked about on the Tunnel Tour, when suddenly she was standing at the forefront of the stage right next to Bruce, and, and her role really was enlarged. On the Born in the USA Tour, it was, it was a very specific uh, backup singing position. So I don't know how much preparation she would have needed, especially if she did know the songs, as you're suggesting. Right. And so wasn't her place on stage kind of back on the riser for the most part? Yes. And I think she and obviously she had a tambourine in her hand for most of the shows. And and she even played some some keyboards here and there. I think you're right. And yeah, yeah, if you um, yeah, if you look at the at the centerfold for live 7585, there's a big shot of the band playing. looks like Born in the USA. And she is right. right. sharing the keyboards, I think, with Roy. Or, I mean, I could be Danny, but uh, it's one of the two. And so, yeah, she was uh, she was adding some some keyboards in there, too. Now, with Patty as a member of the band, they took off for St. Paul, where the tour was going to open. Before the first night, they had some business to attend to, and that was recording a video for Dancing in the Dark, which actually, uh, now that we're talking about it, it, it was two months after the song came out. I Yeah. I, it seems weird that there wasn't a video prior to that. MTV was so big at that point. But of course, I think Bruce was a little reticent to be doing the videos. Yeah, Bruce is always slow to uh, to adopt, to adapt to the to changes, especially in the pop marketplace. And yeah, it, MTV was this new thing. They had done the video for Atlantic City, but obviously he wasn't in it. And so I guess they felt pressure to, to, to get a video out and uh, to go along with the single. And I mean... I think by the when was it when did it peak on the top chart on the top forty chart? I believe the week it hit number two was the week the tour opened. Okay, so it wasn't like the video helped the 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 song on the singles chart, but it certainly helped helped the legend for the rest of the year. Well, and it also established what became an important part of the show, the pulling up of the girl. Right. Yeah, he had done that with Sherry Darling on the part parts of the River Tour, and he was kind of continuing that, but. Having a having a video that was airing on MTV, you know, every probably every hour and a half at some point during '84, it really cemented cemented that uh, that legacy or that that tradition. 
Oh, seriously, when MTV got that video, how many times did they play that thing a day? Oh, uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I didn't have MTV in 1984, believe it or not. So I uh, didn't catch up to that one until until about a year or so later. All right. Well, we'll get back to that. Your MTV <laughs> watching habits. Anyway, yes. so they, they, they shot the video. The tour opens, of course, on June 29th, 36 years ago today. But they shot the bulk of the video the day before Brian De Palma directed that video. Right. And of course, introducing to the world a Miss Courtney Cox, who would later be on, would make her would make her legend on, on Friends, but was, of course, on uh, Family Ties as well. But uh, Bruce said that he he didn't realize she was a plan. He, he thought she was a fan. So he was surprised to learn that uh, that she was actually supposed to dance with him. <laughs> well, Courtney was so young there. And I should give a shout out to my longtime business partner and very close friend, Ellie Canner, who actually cast the Friends pilot, she hmm. picked Courtney and the other five actors, along with the producers, of course, and that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And of course, the she was there on uh, on June 29th, opening night, and that was the first time that Bruce had ever done, or actually it was the second time he had done the same song twice in one show. Yeah, you're right. The second set opened with Hungry Heart, and then they did Dancing in the Dark twice. Bruce said they were doing it for the video shoot. It's actually kind of weird at that point in his career that he allowed that kind of intrusion into the show, but I guess he understood that it was becoming a very important component of the business. Right. He was, as I said, he was slow to adapt to these kinds of changes, but uh, he realized they had to they had to get some get some shots in. I mean, they did most of the work the previous day, as you said. And uh, basically, almost an empty arena, except for about 200 or so people. Uh, but they had to get this—they had to get all the shots right the second night with the big crowd, which, of course, was legendary on the MTV. Now, let's talk about the set list here. The way I see it, 1984 breaks down into like three different stages. The first stage obviously starts on opening night and runs up until around the time of the Meadowlands. And this is the part of the tour where he wasn't necessarily opening with Born in the USA every night. The first show opens with Thunder Road. Now, interestingly, there are 13 songs in this set from Born in the USA in Nebraska, his two most recent albums. But a song of Born in the USA is not played until the eighth song of the show. And in fact, there's three Nebraska songs before Born in the USA song in this show. Well, the way I looked at it, he was taking the River Tour template that he that he had created and basically just he was swapping in the new songs and, and obviously dropping stuff out. I mean, looking at this opening night, Thunder Road, Prove It Out in the Street, Johnny 99. And that really wasn't too different from three years earlier where he would do Out in the Street and then Darkness on the Edge of Town. And do, then he would do Independence Day. But in, in, in St. Paul, it was Atlantic City. So it was the same kind of as I said, template or flowchart, if you will, for how he created the set. And he was just putting the new songs in. That's a good point. And notably, the first Born in USA song that is played is actually the full band No Surrender, which was only played on this night and I think one other night before he ditched the full band version. I guess he felt it wasn't working. And then, of course, he switched to the acoustic version, which we all know from that tour. The acoustic version was obviously released on Live 7585. And yeah, I think that was a much more moving performance. I wasn't, I was never enamored with this full band version from these, from those few nights in eight or those two nights in 84. So I really think he did the song a favor by, by stripping it down. All right. Well, I can buy that. I was always wanting to hear the No Surrender full band. So it was great when we finally got it on the reunion tour. Yeah. And then it became a regular on the Rising tour. And then ever since. That's true. Obviously. <laughs> now, but to go back to your point about 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 the opener of Thunder Road, he seemed to be switched. He was trying to find the opener and he did. It wasn't like he never opened with Born in the USA in June or July. It was like every third show or every other show swapping with with Thunder Road or Badland. So he knew it was a good opener. He just hadn't fully cemented on it being in that slot. Oh, yeah, you're right. And it seems maybe a little unusual now because, of course, we expect on the new tours, like when he tours the next time, we're going to expect a song from the new record, I'm sure, to open. But here he took a little bit of time getting into it as a regular. Right. It took him until uh, late July in Detroit for him to fully realize that Born in the USA was the song to open with. And it's I don't think I've ever seen him open a show with the full band version, but I really would love to see that. Oh, you have it? 
I don't think so. I, I'm looking, scouring my memories. Right, I really because you don't... didn't see shows on the Born in the USA tour, and he has not really opened with Born in the USA that much in later years. No, he has not. I mean, what about I think Vote he... for Change? Uh, that's a good point. I mean, Star Spangled Banner, but well, I guess that's I, a little... I would count Born in the USA as okay. the opener there. Yeah. All right, well, then I saw it twice. <laughs> because in, in my opinion, it's, it's one of the great openers of all time that I've ever seen by any artist. It was so amazing. But we're going to get to my experiences on the Born in the USA tour a little later. Okay. (laughs) But yes, I agree with you 100% that it is one of of his greatest openers of of his entire career. One other thing I think we should definitely touch on with the opening night is, and with these early shows in general, the number of Nebraska songs in the show, really, I'm trying to remember back myself now, it must have been surprising to the audience, even though it was a record that he had obviously released only a couple of years earlier, to have the shows so heavy with Nebraska material, which were stripped down. And in some cases, of course, he, like Johnny 99, I think it was mainly, was it him and just Nils? Um, I think so. It's been a while yeah. since I've listened to to that version of the song, to be honest. It was on Live 7585, so I should know it decently. I think there was a, yeah, you're right. It was just Nils and maybe... Maybe maybe Dan- Gary, I think. You know, the thing about it is he trusted audiences at this point so much. I think that's what I'm getting to here. The way he structured the show, I mean, 13 new songs between the two records. To have stuff like Used Cars and Highway Patrolman in the show. I mean, Highway Patrolman in, on opening night was dropped into the second set. And Used Cars. And, and those were ones that were not really played a lot more as, as the tour progressed. So... But I look at it more that he he just had a lot of faith in 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 the new material overall. I mean, between Nebraska and the and in USA, that and he felt that he wanted to play them. He was going to play them, and of course, at the time, audience were just audiences were just basically different. Yes. Well, and we're that's going to be a theme that we're going to discuss over the next two episodes, because even as early as 1985, things start to change in terms of how audiences are reacting. He became so big. And as you were saying, his stuff was being played on top 40. That was not really something that happened in the past. Oh, yeah. The, the buildup was big at this point. I mean, the uh, the single had exploded and the album was was exploding at the same time. Yeah, I was trying to figure out this morning when they sold the tickets for the initial leg, and I can't quite remember. I'm pretty sure it was before the record came out, but he also had such a passionate following, and that was really how I think they sold these initial batch of tickets. This was not yet the frenzy begins as the year goes on, and without question, like this, I remember the Syracuse shows, even though they, they took place upstate, and we'll get to that much later in the episode. By then, it was it was just a phenomenon. Yes, yes, but but in St. Paul and the and in July, yeah, the shows were powered more from his, you know, from the seventy five to to eighty one legend that he had already built, and he kept the set. Even once they leave St. Paul, the set is pretty consistent on this tour at the at the start of the tour. The one notable exception to that is, and just so random, the first night at Alpine Valley, he debuts the Born in the USA outtake "Man at the Top." Yeah, that that was must have been quite quite the curveball at the time, and he would do it. He did it the next year at a, an RFK stadium in DC for only the two times for basically until what 2013. Mm-hmm. So it's very. Why would he pull that pull that out in like the second week of shows and then not play it again? But you know we can make the same argument for Sugarland. So he, you know, we don't know what goes through his mind sometimes. Well, or I will most say of the time. <laughs> when we get to Sugarland, Sugarland is played in a context that makes a lot more sense than Man at the Top being played randomly in Alpine Valley. I think. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, did he introduce it as a song for election year at in Alpine Valley? He did, didn't he? I think so. I haven't listened so, to that in a, in a while. Yeah, but it, but it's a great sounding great sounding recording. So yeah, now, that now, that's one of the better recordings I think from the '84 tour. Yes, at least is. as far as the bootlegs are concerned, of course. <laughs> yes, and one thing to note about the about the routing of the tour is that he started in St. Paul's, which is not exactly the center of the of the pop culture universe, and so I I like to view it as he started off, you know, basically elsewhere. I don't want to say in the middle of nowhere or in some podunk city because obviously Detroit and Chicago and in Cleveland are not podunk cities, but they're not 
They're not New Jersey, New York either. Well, they're not media centers. Okay, there you go. They're not media centers. So they, uh, I think they obviously planned it so they would have five weeks of getting their chops down, getting the new songs down, getting the show together before they really hit the spotlight in New Jersey. Yes, I think you're 100% right there. They were building up, if it was like a locomotive, it was building up steam as it headed towards New Jersey. <laughs> and it most definitely did. And that was 10 nights, right? 10 nights, 10 sold out nights. When that approached, and it was just so crazy, and there were some good shows, I think, from pe- people we've spoken to over the years. I know Saratoga was thought to be a very good show. In Toronto, right before Saratoga, they debuted My Father's House, which I think is probably the rarest played Nebraska track. Well, if we don't include Bruce on Broadway. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice little caveat we have to we have to include now. But yes, otherwise, My Father's House is definitely the the rarest of the Nebraska songs, even on the acoustic tours of uh, of, of Joad and Devils and Dust in 95 and 05, respectively. Getting back to the summer of 84, he started to bring in some other material. On July 31st, Grown Up is played for the first time in Detroit, and that, of course, is the final show before we get to the Meadowlands. Right, and you want to talk about Growing Up, that, that becomes one of the, the centerpieces of, of the tour for for that for that summer the dancing bear and going through the woods that was that was a big part of the, of the shtick and i think that helped the legend grow well that story was so crazy with the with jim the dancing bear on stage and i know it was somewhat of a variation of the story he told going back as far as i think the darkness tour it was just such a fun moment in the show and i think for audiences He really put the focus on the Clarence there. Of course, now Steve was gone. And my personal opinion, of course, I had not seen the band without Steve. But as we get to the Meadowlands, I think the audience has accepted this new version of the band entirely. Well, that's that's a good question to ask. And obviously, I wasn't there. So we we would have to ask some older fans who saw a bunch of shows either on the Darkness Tour or the River Tour to really get the feel of of whether there was a different feel to this band, but I get the feeling, get the impression that it really didn't, if there was some objection, it didn't last very long. People went with it. I mean, (laughs) and the shows were, uh, these were incredible, incredible shows. Now, obviously I know he played a lot of great shows on the river tour. It's a little bit different. The river tour I think is held up as probably his best tour, but make no mistake. What took place in the summer of 1984 was spectacular. It really was. But of course I would, argue that the fall of 84 was just as special so no, we're gonna we're, get to that we're gonna get, get, we're gonna get to ahead. that i know i know i know but of course in 84 he was all he was he hadn't the summer of 84 rather he hadn't the explosion hadn't happened yet i mean he no, was certainly right he was certainly riding high but it wasn't it was sort of bubbling below the surface on the go. way to happen it was simmering there you go well, it was getting ready to explode and it was the arrival in the, in the New York market. I, the coverage of the stand was was very big. People were going crazy. I had a ticket for the third night, which was August 8th, with a bunch of my buddies. And the anticipation, p- people were talking about it. It was really amazing. And, and as we know, because the first show, which took place on August 5th, is released as part of the Archive series, very, very solid show to kick off the stand. Yeah, it was a very strong show, which obviously I know because I listened to it, not because I was there, through the through the magic of, of Nugs. And very strong show. They 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 were hitting their stride just perfectly. And Bruce threw in a little little local flavor with the tour debut of Jersey Girl, so that went over quite well. And and also, what was interesting listening to this now is he he gave kind of a lighthearted introduction to to use cards with, with his parents in attendance and. That kind of uh, lightheartedness, especially re- regarding the Nebraska material, was something that it didn't just didn't happen later in the year. Yeah, well, the show definitely got a little bit more focused. I think uh, we're going to get to the political circumstances. More political. We should we opened with political circumstances. <laughs> there were political circumstances in 1984, but at this point in August, that has not happened yet. No, so no. Uh, this and, is still and, about a fun party. Yeah, and, and the shows were very much a party. The second night, August 6th at the Meadowlands, he tore premieres Spirit in the Night. And that's actually a show we know was recorded because Trap from that show was released on the We Are the World compilation. 
and I didn't didn't Sterling make some kind of comment about the first two shows of the stand and the last two shows being yes. being yes. professionally recorded. So that's why I hope I hope we get that one. I think as you pointed out to me uh, off air, Street Fighting Man really deserves a, an official release. Yeah, Street Fighting Man, which was added to the encores on this tour, at, of course, a cover of the Rolling Stones song and hasn't been released yet as part of the archive series. It was played on August 6th, and to me, that makes it a prime choice for release. It's otherwise a very, very good show, too. It's got the trap from the We Are the World. It's got used cars. We'd have to go back over and see how many different songs it has from 8.5 and 8.20, but I think there's a number of them. Yes, it certainly looks like uh, Open All Night was played on the 6th, uh, Nebraska, and obviously, as you said, Trap. So. Oh, and I'm a rocker. Oh, that's that's always a big one for me. So, yeah, it was uh, there were some changes, enough changes on the back-to-back nights to make that release worthwhile. Yeah, I I hope that they release it. I hope they release everything, but you know we've had that discussion before. <laughs> now, at the third night at the Meadowlands was something special happened then. Yeah, it's rare that you can actually point to a night. I mean, uh, with such clarity and go, well, there is a night that my life changed, and I know other people have experienced this with Bruce as well. But on the night of August 8th, the third show at the Meadowlands, I saw Bruce for the first time. And I really, it was just, it was, the memory of it is so overpowering. Like I remember being in that arena. What I remember most late in the show went in the encores, Jungle Land with him thrusting his fist in the air and, and the entire arena doing it in unison. It just, it, it's, it's one of those things that you never forget. And it was the the whole night. I mean, he he was opening with Born in the USA at this point, and it was just as, as I said, one of the best openers I've ever seen. I, obviously, I couldn't make that assessment <laughs> on the night of August eighth, nineteen eighty four, because it was only my second concert ever. But now, looking back on it and having seen Born in the USA open a number of shows, it really the the power of that song opening a show is pretty remarkable, and just it. it just an amazing, amazing experience. And he, we got the growing up that you talked about with the long story. It just, it was, it was a great baptism into the world of Bruce. And, and from there we were, uh, we were off and running oh, and, and but, now, and now we're talking about it 36 years later, <laughs> but you were a pretty big fan by then. I mean, didn't you already have, have a bootleg of Winterland? No, that was actually after eight, eight. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I, I had been a fan. I, don't want to get into the whole street, but I had definitely been a huge fan of Born to Run. I got the river when it first came out. I had greetings. I had most of the records. I didn't really quite get Nebraska when it when it first came out, as I think we discussed once before. But I had not yet. I didn't even I don't think I knew what a bootleg was when I entered the arena that night. It was it was later on. Someone said to me, do you have this Winterland show? <laughs> and it, it was it was a couple of months after that. So and then we started going to record shows. But that's a discussion for, I think, another episode. Yeah. So you were you were a pretty big fan, but you hadn't been totally converted yet. No, no, and not even and close. That, and that's what happened on August 8th, 1984. Yes. Well, you, okay. I, I think it's fair to say and I most people I bet feel this way with Bruce. You can listen to the studio albums, and the studio albums did mean a lot to me. I mean, Born to Run, I wore that thing out. I had it on cassette. It, it was crazy how much I listened to Born to Run in particular. And then when Born in the USA came out, the same thing. But until you experience the full power of the E Street Band live, it's just not the same. And and as a as a young kid, to see that and and to feel you know, it's what he says. We talk about it all the time. One plus one equals three to be in that audience and to, to have that collective experience. Look, that's what it's all about. And that's why all these years later, we're still talking about him. You got to see him live is always the, is always the the line that people use. And it's happens. <laughs> We've heard it from so many different people. Again, this is not really for the Born USA tour, but I think of all the times where I've taken someone who hasn't seen Bruce and had them stand next to me and watch their faces when the show first starts and they see the power and what's going on. It always cracks me up every time. I don't think there's a single person I've taken to the show who some of them were skeptics. Oh, yeah, we don't really believe it. And they believe it by the end of the night. And I certainly <laughs> believed it by the end of the night on August 8th, 1984. 
Yeah, I I was already a pretty big fan by my first show, but uh, and I kind of wish I had seen him. Obviously, I wish I had seen him earlier, especially during the classic era. But uh, I am a victim of my chronology. So now, as the stand goes on, because it did go on after that night, and I didn't, I, I we were seeing one show. I was so after that, we were so desperate to get back. We were kids, and it was a very very tough ticket, so it wasn't in the cards. But the stand did go on, and he really did mix it up on the stand for what he was doing at the time. And there are some really nice choices in here. Unfortunately, based on what we know from, from what Serling said, it doesn't seem like they have anything but the first two and the last two shows. But if you look at some of the shows, the one where JT Bowen guested and they did a woman's got the power. I mean, that, that was, and I've listened to that show a number of times that that's a fun one. Yes. And of course the, the last night was, has been released and that's, that is a, an amazing show. I think that's widely regarded as one of the best shows of the tour. I think so as well. Now we should point out, uh, I'm sorry. We should point out that on August 17th, every song from born in the USA had been played in St. Paul, except for one that was, I'm going down. And that was played on August 17th, complete with the story that we became accustomed to. (laughs) Yes. I, and I absolutely love that story. And, uh, and it, it rings true, you know? Well, I certainly understand today that it rings true. <laughs> I don't know what I, if I really grasped that when I was 15, but... Uh, that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, and I, I didn't hear it until... Hear that hear that song at all, or hear that the live version until uh, eighty nine. So on by the through the magic of bootlegging. So by that time, I kind of got it, but not really. And and that final night, you're right, an excellent addition to the archive series. To me, Drift Away is one of the great covers that he's ever done. The way they arranged it that night with Steve and the Horns, it, that was that was really something. And and I and I remember that night live because Carol Miller of WNEW was broadcasting from the Meadowlands, and for some reason they allowed her to turn the mic on and sort of like sneak listens for every song or two for 30 seconds. Mm. And so I was listening to the show live, but I would get like 30 seconds of the song and then (laughs) she'd go back to talking and then she'd be like, let's check in again. It was, it was both maddening and so exciting. And it was pretty crazy. And I had fallen so hard and I'm just glad we have the archive from H1E to listen to. It's a great representation of the early part of the tour. Yeah, it has the the pink Cadillac story. It's got the growing up story. Even has the Tenth Avenue freeze out with the horns that was released on Live seventy five eighty five, and it does have a, a nice little uh, three song Nebraska suite of Atlantic City, Johnny ninety nine, and Highway Patrolman. Yeah, those are nice. I, I think he he got very comfortable with the Nebraska material, and and it did work so well. And you, and you, that's really reflected on the archive there. Those are the three, three of the highlights for me. Plus, drift away from that show. So after they left the Meadowlands, it had built, but it wasn't, he was still not yet superstar Bruce. That would come a little bit later in the year. And the tour continued through the Northeast. They did Worcester, they did Hartford, they did Philly, of course. The Philly stand, I think we should we should talk about. There were, there were six nights there. The final night was perhaps the most famous born in the USA bootleg, This Gun's for Hire. Uh, yes, it was. It had some amazing sound, and it was seemed to be widely available pr- relatively quickly for the time, and beautiful artwork, and and just a perfect show to, to do it with, too. Yeah, but missing the end of Jungle Land. I, we got that. <laughs> I was with my buddy Roger. We read a record show when that first came out, This Guns for Hire, and we raced home, and we wanted to listen to that thing so badly, and we were listening to the entire show, and then Jungle Land was truncated, and we were like, What? <laughs> you didn't understand that tapes ran out at the most inopportune time. We were so new to bootlegs and we were and we were so happy to have that thing. That thing was like it was like literally like the crown jewels as you say. It was it was packaged nicely because we had had a little experience with bootlegs prior to that and they were so bad. There was one do you remember from Cincinnati? It was called Porn in the USA. Ah uh, yes, I never actually heard it, but I remember reading about it. We so. actually we had what we used to do was buy them in 
tanned them, and then we'd make cassette copies from them so we didn't have to keep buying the same bootlegs over and over again. And this porn in Cincinnati, uh, was porn in the USA, live in Cincinnati, and it was so bad. Like, you would think, like, that's why it is pretty funny when you hear people complaining about the archive series, which we're paying 10 bucks <laughs> for. You know, and I think back to, like, 1984 when I would go into, like, these illicit record shops and we'd pay, I don't remember how much it was at the time, but it was a lot of money for us. We, you know, whatever it was, 20 bucks, whatever. And it was more than 20 bucks, Al. Wait, 20 <laughs> bucks in, in 1984? Oh, for a four disc set? Wasn't it like 80? Oh, I don't know if it was that much. 80 bucks was a lot of money in 1984, Flynn. Oh, I know. But, but for, I, I mean, that was a huge set, wasn't it? I mean, it, okay, 40 bucks, but it wasn't, yeah. definitely wasn't. But 20. whatever it was, it was, it, it just makes me laugh because we paid for such crap. And it's a little embarrassing when you think about it. But that's how hungry everyone was for the material. I can imagine. As I said, I didn't discover bootlegs until few couple years later than that 88 to be exact so i uh i got to skip some of that stuff and but i'm jealous that you guys were you know you're on the hunt during during these tours now the last night in philly what a great show that is he he threw and i fought the law that was of course the debut in 1984 of santa claus candy's room is in there he found a groove it had already existed at the meadowlands but as the year went on they found a groove and these shows were just magnificent. Yeah, I was and I'm looking at the set list now as, as you are and State Trooper and Reasons to Believe really stand out to me. And I remember listening to them going, wow, this is this is some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, that version of State Trooper. I've always wished that he would play. I know we say this about so many songs, but State Trooper, because it was on Nebraska. It's not like we're talking about some obscure B-side or something. No, State Trooper is so great. And it, it except on the Devils and Dust Tour, of course, where it was played, it really should get more airings. Yeah, you would think because it has such that dark sound and he's, he could really he'd probably go nuts on the guitar a little bit, but Tis not to be. I mean, we know they sound checked it in '99, and he actually worked up a pretty, pretty comprehensive arrangement. But he just, it just never happened. The day after the, this show in Philly on September 19th, that's when the political event occurs, and Bruce is used as an example by then President Ronald Reagan, who's on a campaign stop in New Jersey. Reagan says. America's future rests in the message of hope and songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's Bruce Springsteen. And this did not sit well with Bruce. <laughs> you know, it didn't, but he didn't exactly make a big deal out of responding to it either. I mean, he did say something along the lines of, I don't think the president's been listening to this one recently before going into Johnny 99 or, or whatever song it was the next night. But you know, he didn't issue any kind of press release saying, please don't use my name or please don't use my music as he has done in, sub in subsequent uh, episodes. Well, he responded how he knew at the time, which was the talk on stage and in the music. Now, of course, as we obviously talked about opening the show, he's wide open and he's willing to say anything he feels he needs to say, which is great. But at this point, I don't think he was ready for that yet. No, you're right. You're right. He really wasn't. But I just remember reading somewhere that yeah he didn't agree with the president talking about him he didn't want the president talking about him but he didn't exactly go out go out of his way to alert his entire fan base uh, of that fact of course you're correct and communication was just a lot different then also there wouldn't have been as easy a way there was no social media of course so it's not like he could go on twitter and say i don't like that this happened or something really the way to do it was on stage and hope that it was going to be reported Okay. All right. That makes that, sense. That would, be, that would be my sense of the situation. Yeah, but it wasn't like Shorefire or whatever his PR company at the time or record label released the press release either, because that that would have gotten that would have gotten some uh, some traction, too. You know, I don't know at the time how much that kind of thing was done. Obviously, it's way before my time in knowing anything about how PR is handled. But it just seems to me like that wasn't, I don't think, covered anywhere near in the same way that it is now. Even when Shorefire sends out a press release now, they know it's going to be covered. There's special entertainment 
uh, sites. Even before that, I, I think the only one who would have really covered anything like this in 1984 probably would have been Rolling Stone. I don't know yeah. if it would have gotten, you know, what I don't think it was going to be on Walter Cronkite. <laughs> That's true. It probably would probably would not have been. Another aspect is just the fact that Reagan was incredibly popular. And he was a he was a he was just like a few weeks away from one of the most devastating victories, presidential election victories of all time, or at least in, in decades. Oh, no, so, all time, he won forty nine states. Yeah, everything except Minnesota, right? Yeah, which was Mondale's home state. But I, I wonder if that may have played into it. If you had a, a very popular president mentioning your name on stage, you know, it can't be that bad. I don't want to say that Bruce wasn't going to talk because he was concerned about Reagan's popularity. I don't believe that to be true. But where I do think it factors in is that Bruce's audience at the time, some of it did overlap heavily with with Reagan voters. And, you know, I'm sure that that was something they thought about. I think that also brings what his response where he obviously references what Reagan said and then plays Johnny 99. And also it's around this time he starts making the food bank donations. Right. It's exactly the same time, isn't it? Yeah. It was the, wasn't the first one in Pittsburgh, which was yes. that yes. weekend or that yes. he gave two days? $10,000 to the local United Steelworkers. Nice. Yeah. So he really started making, trying to do what he could, which I yeah. guess is, is what, what everybody should do to make their, their home, their hometown a, a, a good place to live. After Pittsburgh, Bruce celebrated his 35th birthday, and then they wound up in Buffalo for two shows to close out to leg. From there, they took a three-week break, and then they opened back on the West Coast in Vancouver. And I think as the West Coast continues, there are some really interesting aspects to the set to talk about. Yeah, the first two, uh, the first two shows of that of that next leg, they were pretty much picked up where uh, everything where he left off in uh, about a month earlier, but. It was the third night of that leg, the second night in Tacoma, which, as we all know, was rescheduled because Bruce was a little bit sick. And they were getting to the they were getting to the end of Backstreets, and they everybody was expecting Rosie, and instead they get born to Ron, and I think that really threw a threw a shockwave through the fan base. Well, it was certainly a big deal that Rosalita was dropped, and also Jungle Lamb was dropped from this show. Really unique set of encores. As a matter of fact, Street Fighting Man, Wooly Bully, Follow That Dream. I'm guessing they don't have this show. If they had this show, this would be a great, great choice for the Archive series. Am I correct in assuming they don't have it? Yeah, that's a pretty good assumption. But this was a real sea change because you had two of the major pillars of the set for years. I mean, Rosalita, I think, had last been dropped in, well, it had never been dropped. Yeah, he started he started playing it. It replaced Thundercrack in like 1974, right. and they never, right, he never right. looked back until the yeah. show. So Rosie was dropped, and Jungle Lamb, which, as I was mentioning when I saw the show on August 8th, was such a major moment for me. Now these songs were gone from the show, and it really did change the tone, I think. So I think he really was suddenly starting to experiment with the show at this point, and that continues in Oakland. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, Oakland is is legendary because it has that each night it has about a five song Nebraska set, which he had been doing three and maybe another one in the later in the first set. But this one seemed to to really be intense. Uh, Johnny 99, Reason to Believe, Mansion, then State Trooper. So he, he was really going dark there. And then the next night in Oakland, he uh, he did shut out the light. Well, I think you're skipping over a major thing from the first night in Oakland, and that's, of course, that it's the first time that the Cover Me Dancing in the Dark combo opened the second set, which was a major change from the run of rockers that he'd been doing ever since the River Tour. Yes, you are right. And to me, this is one of the what's one of the hallmarks of the Born in the USA tour that makes it that makes it different in that it, it starts with the with the intro that we all know. And before it goes into the actual song, and then it kind of then it segues into Dancing in the Dark, which it wasn't like the four rockers of of 88 and 81, where it was just boom, boom, boom. This one, he kind of built things out a little bit and had some fun with obviously the dancing, dancing with the girl and during Dancing in the Dark. So but then, of course, he kept it going with like Cadillac Ranch and Hungry Heart most nights. So it wasn't that different. You had Downbound Train in the show pretty much every night at this point. Plus, I'm on fire. So I do think he changed the focus of the second set when he went to the Cover Me Dancing in the Dark pairing. 
Oh, I think you're right. And he definitely continued that into Los Angeles. In L.A., among the notable selections on the 29th, Born in the USA was followed by Night, which was a rarity at this point, the only performance in 1984. And then one of my personal favorites, at least to listen to, unfortunately, there's never been a really high-quality bootleg. The Halloween show is is pretty amazing. Bruce coming out of a casket or a coffin to to jump into High School Confidential. Just It just sounded fun. I mean, you're right. There's not a... There's not a high-quality recording of it, and that's definitely something we're missing. Now, do we know, and I think this is something that a lot of people would like an answer to. I don't know if we have it. The Born in USA video, was, of course, was shot in Los Angeles. John Sales, the famous director, directed the Born in USA video. Oddly, they made the choice of using the studio track over the live footage, which, as we all know, <laughs> did not sync up properly. If they were shooting, they, they must have recorded audio, even uh, just as a safety, I, I would think. Do we have any idea whether they recorded audio at any of these I, shows, especially the night they recorded Born in the USA? I have no idea. Obviously, we don't have any official release music from the LA-84 stand, and that's and when, you can't always prove a negative, but there's not much evidence pointing that they do have it. You would, We would like to think that, yes, yeah, something would have come out by now, but as of now, I'm not holding my breath. But what, what we will say is any of these shows would be an excellent selection for the Archive series, especially 1031, because uh, it's a really fun show, and there's some unusual selections in there. There's the High School Confidential there's a Who'll Stop the Rain is in there. My Father's House is in there. Again, as you point out, he does an extended Nebraska set. Also, in the encores, which was very unusual at the time, of course, normally Hungry Heart and Cherry Darling were played at the start of the second set. That had been the way it had been all the way back to 8081. Here, they're in the encores. That was something that Bruce was shaken up, but I think a bigger, no- a bigger notable change was that these shows were the first were the first ones were racing in the street with that extended story at the end became this became the set closer for 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 a while there no yes that's very important to point out now did it have the story in los angeles it's been a while since i listened to any of those shows but it, he pretty much told that story almost on almost every one no yeah well he develops the the certainly the story within a week or two of leaving los angeles as we know from the famous bootlegs the story is there that's one of the great versions of Racing in the Street. And in fact, if the story was there, we should go back and check. Because remember, in Marsh's book, he talks about the Racing in the Street with the story and that they wanted to use it for live 75 to 85, but they didn't have it. So if, in fact, the, if that's accurate and they did do the story in L.A., then that would be evidence that they, in fact, don't have the L.A. shows. Yes, that would be an unfortunate conclusion to have to draw, but... That version with that story definitely needs needs an official release. Yeah, even if they have a two track, they should get that. Oh out. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm all for two tracks anyway. The, you know, the more the merrier. After they leave Los Angeles, there's a series of shows in places like St. Louis where he's continuing along with this type of set, and then they get to Ames, Iowa, and also Nebraska. The following show and something. Very unusual, which Flynn alluded to a little earlier. There's the performance of the outtake Sugarland in both places, and clearly it's thematic and I think partially political. Okay, well, definitely thematic. And I mean, I just, my understanding of, of history is that they there were farms that were going, that were undergoing some severe changes, some uh, some suffering, some some problems, some losses, and that's exactly what Sugarland was written about. So he pulled it out at these two shows. And, and, of course, and never since. <laughs> that is true. Never played again. But if you look at these sets, I mean, look at the way it's constructed. The, the songs, Atlantic City, Johnny 99, Reason to Believe, Nebraska, Johnny Bye Bye, all in a row. And then Sugarland is between The Promised Land and My Hometown, which is... Yeah, that makes a statement. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, My yeah. Hometown was followed by Badlands. Yeah, and Thunder Road to, to to close this to close the set. So yeah, he he had a little he had a bit of a statement to make, and he made it. I, I forget how much int- introduction he gave to my hometown at this point in the tour. It was certainly pretty long, uh, and on on other nights. And of course, there's a very high quality bootleg of the Lincoln Show. Yes, and we're we're very thankful for that. I mean, uh, to get that version of Sugarland in, in a pretty high quality is was a good thing, and that also includes the racing in the street with the extended story. 
Yeah, it's unfortunate because, you know, in the 1980s, and we've talked about this before with the mobile production vehicles needed to record, there'd be literally nobody who would be recording in Ames, Iowa or Lincoln, Nebraska. That's just the reality. So in these shows in particular, the bootlegs are incredibly important. Yeah, they uh, the fans really did. The tapers really did some some good work here, and we should be forever thankful for them just uh, so we can have this to listen to 30 some odd years later. After Nebraska, they headed to Kansas City, which, of course, is one of the most famous, along with Alpine Valley and This Guns for Hire, which we already mentioned. I think the Kansas City, those are the three certainly from 84 that are the most famous bootlegs. You would agree with that, right? Um, I would throw in Oakland Night, which was the first night in Oakland, 1021. But yeah, those are like the, the top four, four or five from, from, from 84. And from there, they just settled into, they were in the Southwest, they were in Houston, he played Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Birmingham, Alabama, and the tour is just continuing. And and if I recall properly, in December of 84, even though he was down South and outside the major American media markets, everything was just cooking at that point. Of course, Born in the USA had come out as a single on October 30th. And even though it didn't rise on the charts as high as Dancing in the Dark did, it was the thing that really solidified what Bruce was doing that year. And 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 things just took off. Uh, to me, as big a hit as Dancing is, and of course it stands as his biggest hit, as we've mentioned, to me, Born in the USA is actually the bigger song from that year. Well, in terms of Bruce's signature songs, yes. Now, I would also point out that by this time, this in December of 84, I guess, I don't know where Born in the USA, the, the single was on on the charts. He had also released Cover Me between Dancing and Born in the USA. I guess it was released in late summer. So so that was the second consecutive top 10 hit. And then USA was on on the same tra- trajectory. And of course, the album was, was at the top of the charts for most of the year. The sales were making him a big deal. Well, we also have to talk about how it does tie into the political because the flag was a very major symbol in 1984. And of course, he was using it as in, in his own way. But as he himself has said, there's a lot of money and misinterpretation. And a lot of people heard just the words born in the USA as sort of a jingoistic cry, which, of course, anyone listening to this podcast probably understands that it's not. <laughs> But no, people did get caught up in that. And look, he, he said it himself. He benefited. I mean, misinterpretation he made him wildly rich. I think other re- there were other factors in there as well. But that song, to me, really, as the year goes on, really helps things take off. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And, of course, the fact that he had the, the, the flag on the cover of the album didn't exactly uh, sway any people to think that it was anything more than a than a jingoistic or patriotic anthem. I think we should point out that at least at some of the shows, I know this was in Syracuse. I don't know how many shows. It was any of the shows, I think, where he wasn't playing with an audience behind him. He played in front of a massive, yeah. I mean, massive American flag. So that was a very definitive choice that he made. And I think that they knew at the time that they made it, they certainly knew what was going on in the country. And I, it, to me, I would read it as, sort of him reclaiming the flag for his his viewpoints. Well, if he was if that's what he was trying to do, I'm not sure it entirely worked because I mean, he kept playing with that flag behind him into throughout 1985, right? So yes. <laughs> I don't think it did anything to dissuade the people who were misinterpreting it. This is we'll add this to the list of really interesting questions we could ask Bruce. <laughs> I'm not sure if you want to look at it as I mean, did they did they play into it? I, I don't know. Obviously, they knew the song was being somewhat misinterpreted. It, it would be a very interesting question to ask Bruce, as I say, you know, what was the thinking behind the use of that massive flag? I think he would say what I said, that it was basically his way of, of reclaiming the flag for the song. But I, certainly they had to know that there would be some who misinterpreted it and only saw what that the man was standing in front of a giant flag. Right. Well, fortunately, after as soon as the song ended, the the big flag came down, and it was and it was just the band up there. As they started to bring the year to a close, they were still in the southeast, and notably in Memphis. And the two final shows in Atlanta, Steve made guest appearances again with the band in Memphis. Probably as a tip of hat to the city, they once again did drift away. That was not done in Atlanta. No, and the the, the songs that they did were actually very similar to what 
what they had done at the last night at the Meadowlands with two hearts and born to run in, in the and the Detroit medley. So they they weren't exactly pushing any new ground, but I'm sure the fans there were just they must have been ecstatic because I know I would have been. Oh yes, I totally agree. And I did later see Steve make a couple of guest appearances on the tour in '85, and it was a big deal every time he showed up. It's always it was always special to see those two perform, especially. Well, at least after Steve left the band officially, but um, that was one of the highlights when the re- when the reunion tour started. So they took the holidays off and they came back very early in the year, January fourth, in fact, in Hampton, Virginia. And the month of January, which is why we split it up this way, is really a part of the '84 arena leg. And all it, this is a very unique month of touring for Bruce, especially as they get towards the end of the leg into Syracuse. The, he he changes the show again where there's the long Nebraska sets. He starts doing Thunder Road in certain cases in the encores, which Thunder Road had been played at the end of the first set or as the opener for years at that point. Going back to 78, yeah. So they came to the end of the leg and incredibly, he still had another notch to kick it up. And here the entire set is unusual, especially the encores. Absolutely. Anytime you got uh, Thunder Road and Ramrod in the Encore, and Ramrod in the Encore doesn't sound too radical now, but in 1985, it, it, it's def- it definitely was. Well, look at Providence, January 24th. Listen to this set of Encores. Can't Help Falling in Love, Born to Run, I'm a Rocker, Ramrod, Thunder Road, Wooly Bully, Santa Claus. So you've there's no more medley. There's no more Twist and Shout. There's obviously no Jungle Land. Rosalita's dropped from the second set. This is a radically revamped version of the show going back to where we started in St. Paul on June 29th. He was ending the the second set with with the racing in the street that we talked about earlier. Uh, You got the extended Nebraska set, including Shut Out the Light, which was basically a semi-regular at this point and definitely a highlight of, of listening to those recordings. And then, of course, Syracuse, he had the biggest change was that was his first football stadium, no? Yeah, a friend of ours went to Syracuse. I was I was 15 years old. My parents were not letting me go to Syracuse <laughs> for a rock concert, and it was killing me that these shows were taking place. And a lot of people went up from Long Island, where I was li- from, and and from New York. And by then, he it was so big. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the set list at this point. He's becoming big. He's playing his first stadium show. Now, of course, we're going to have a little bit different things to say in the next episode when they get to the stadiums back again in in the summer. But here he plays his first stadium shows. There's no Rosalita. There's no Jungle Land. And again, the encores, you know, listen to the encores. This the last night in Syracuse. Can't help falling in love. Born to run. I'm a rocker. Ramrod, Thunder Road, rocking all over the world. You know, so he really, I think, was challenging the audience and the audience was ready to be challenged at that point. You know, the, the stories from Syracuse, and I know the Carrier Dome was this cavernous place. I don't think the sound was great, but the level of excitement that was described in the building was was really insane off the charts. Well, I think at that point, he not only had been on, been on the cover of Rolling Stone a couple of times, but on People Magazine, no? Yeah, so, he was... He you know, was so, yeah, this was if the explosion was about to happen, this was the the like almost the final the final tick of the clock. Yeah, and from there they really did go off to conquer the world in a, in a way they had not done. Of course, he had played many successful shows in Europe, but they went and 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 conquered areas of the world including Japan and Australia that he had not yet hit and by the time he came back to the states in August he was literally the biggest rock star on the planet. <laughs> yes, but that's just our little teaser for the, for the next episode. Yes, we're going to pick that up in episode 19, which will look at the 1985 touring year for the Born in the USA tour. And with that, let's finish with our usual bit of business. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other major ones. On Twitter, we can be found at NBTB Podcast, and our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. 
If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.